Let's pray. Gracious Father, please send your spirit now to be at work among us, that as your word is proclaimed, we would receive it in our hearts, that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's school holidays, and one of my favourite holiday activities, or the favourite holiday activities in our family, is listening to audiobooks, you know, long car trips, hours to fill during the day. And one of the audiobooks that's been on high rotation over the years is The Lion King. It's a condensed version of the Disney classic movie, which is all about the life of Simba. Uh, you might remember the young lion who's heir to the throne of his father, Mufasa. Now, after Simba's uncle, the evil, scheming Scar, murders King Mufasa, Scar manipulates Simba into thinking that he was responsible. Young Simba runs away and Uncle Scar takes the throne and he begins his evil, self-seeking rule. What happens next? Well, I won't ruin it for you. (laughs) But the question is whether Simba is going to take on Scar and take his rightful place as king of the Pride Lands. Um, If that's a little bit too lowbrow for you, the Lion King, uh, you should know this, that it follows the plotline of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Uh, So there you go. One of the great themes in the movie is this idea of the circle of life. The idea that all life on this earth is part of a balanced cycle where we all take our particular place. It's nature's way of taking and of giving back to the earth. Even when we die, we then hand on life to someone else, the circle of life. And so in the movie, Simba finds his place in the circle of life when he realises that his father Mufasa, though he's dead, lives on in him. And so he has what it takes to be king. Look inside yourself, Simba. He lives in you. He's told by the wise old baboon Rafiki. Now what I think the Lion King taps into with this circle of life idea is an idea that is becoming increasingly influential actually in 21st century Australian life. More and more we tend to think of the world as a closed system of natural cycles. Cause and effect ruled by nature's laws. You hear it sometimes at secular funerals, the idea that death is just a natural part of life. It's something that we need to come to terms with. It's nature's way of perpetuating itself or you hear it when you hear of people speaking about the land as if it's the unchanging eternal thing as everything else cycles over it while people are just fleeting but what our passage from 2 peter 3 reminds us today is that this is not the way things really are well yes we can point to the cycles of things in the immediate natural world The underlying reality is that all of human history is heading towards a goal. It's heading towards an end point. There will be a day when Jesus will return to judge all people, Peter says in our passage. The day of the Lord, when all wickedness will be swept away and the earth will be renewed and made perfect. And we need to live in readiness for that day. 
When Peter wrote this section of his letter, he was writing to first century Christians who were at risk of drifting away from their faith because people were teaching that the world is a closed system and that the return of Jesus was a myth that had just been cooked up by some of his early followers. Peter's goal was to encourage his readers that they could have absolute trust in what they had been taught. Now for us today, this passage does much the same, reminding us that despite all the pressures around us to the contrary, despite all the assumptions about how the world works, you know, natural cycles and all that, the promise of Jesus' return is no myth. It can be trusted and we need to live our whole lives in light of that fact. So it'd be good to have your Bibles open to 2 Peter um, chapter 3. There's also an outline there in the new sheets uh, that you were given as you came in. So the passage begins with Peter reminding his readers of the purpose of the letter and also a previous letter that he had written to them. And what's the purpose? Well, it's there in verse 1, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. In other words, he wants them to be thinking about the world, perceiving the world in a way that is both true and moral. That's what he means when he talks about wholesome thinking. And the key to this kind of thinking is that it is firmly revealed, it is firmly grounded in God's revealed truth. Have a look at what he writes from verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. So that's what God has said through his prophets in what we would call the Old Testament. And what Jesus has said through his apostles in what we would call the New Testament that needs to be remembered if we are to think and act rightly. You know, people come up with all sorts of compelling theories and assumptions about how the, word, the world works. Uh, stuff that when you hear it just seems to make intuitive sense. That without even thinking about it, you just start to go along with. But we need to be more thoughtful than that. Remembering and reflecting on God's truth first and making it the lens through which we see the world. And as we get older too, the source of much of our Christian growth is going to be much more in remembering what we have learnt rather than learning new stuff. Peter's really big right throughout uh, most of his second letter on this idea of remembering. Remember this, remember that, don't forget this. And it's, it's a big idea in our passage as well here this morning. Now, it concerns me when uh, sometimes I hear people who have been Christians for a while speak as if they have learnt all there is to know. And so they no longer bother with things like regular Bible reading, small group uh, attendance or, or regular church attendance. Friends, we need to be engaged with all of those things, those means of grace, and we need to be engaged with them with regularity because we are so prone to forgetting. We need to remember. And so Peter then goes on to list five things to remember if we're to keep on living in the light of the coming return of Jesus. These are things that we as Christians need to hold on to, especially as pressures around us force us to live as if Jesus is just a myth. So the first thing is to remember that scoffers will come. That's the first I think that Peter says we should remember. It's simply inevitable. Have a look at verse 3. Uh, Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. 
And the last days here, by the way, is just the New Testament's way of referring to that time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. It's, it's the whole of this 2,000-year period and beyond um, that we're in at the moment. So these scoffers who are coming in the last days, they are people who mock the very idea that Jesus is going to return. Verse 4 gives us a sample of the kinds of things that they say. Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So it's not just the idea that, well, the bus hasn't arrived yet and therefore it's never going to arrive. No, it's also the kind of circle of life idea that we saw before. The closed system governed by the laws of nature. That's the kind of worldview their mockery implies and proclaims. Now this kind of mockery lives on in our world today, doesn't it? If you want to make someone look like a religious nutter uh, in the media, you refer to their ideas about Christ's second coming. That's what you do. Well, I remember when I was a new Christian, the idea of Christ's return was something that I was a little bit embarrassed about around my non-Christian friends. Why can't it just be that we die and then our souls go to heaven and that's it? Much more acceptable thought. Well, because that's paganism. That's not the way that God has made things to be. And so Peter's simple point here is to forewarn us that there always will be people who laugh at the idea of Christ's return. It should not surprise us when we hear these kinds of attitudes. But Peter also goes a little deeper here as well. I see at the end of verse 3 there where he talks of the scoffers following their own evil desires. He's saying their scoffing is actually a smokescreen for them to pursue their own selfish desires. See, if Christ is not returning, there is no judgment. And it doesn't matter how you live. So while laughing at Christ's return might appear to be the rational and reasoned thing to do, it's actually not about reason at all. It's about desires. And that means don't let these so-called rational arguments unsettle you. Don't let them rock your faith in God's promise of Christ's return. The second thing for us to remember that Peter wants us to remember is that the world is governed by God's word. What we see in verses 5 to 7 is Peter's response to the argument of the scoffers. See, where they say the world is a contained system operating according to nature's laws, the truth is is that nature's laws are themselves upheld and sustained by God for the purposes for which he made them. They are servants, not masters. Specifically, nature's laws are upheld and sustained, they're governed by God's word. Have a look at verses 5 to 7 and notice the central importance here of God's word. But they deliberately forget that long ago... By God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So at creation, Genesis chapter 1, do you remember what happened? God spoke and everything came into being. Do you remember that refrain? And God said, let there be, and it was so. 
And God said, let there be. And it was so. And then again, at the time of Noah, when God sent the flood in judgment against humankind's sin, it was his word directing the floodwaters. That's what verse 6 is all about. And so will the return of Christ be at the command of God's word. You know, there is nothing that happens in this universe that is outside, that operates outside of his, the sustaining power of his word. We think that the earth turns daily, the seasons come and go annually, that plants and animals grow and die because of impersonal laws. But the truth is, he looks at this world and he says, spin, spin, spin. He looks at each one of you and he says, breathe, breathe, breathe. He looks at the atoms that make up the universe and he says, move, hold, bond. And so when God gives his word that one day the world will be judged and the ungodly destroyed, we do well to sit up and take notice. All things happen at the command of his word. Third thing to remember, God's time is not like our time. Verse 8. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. For followers of Christ, our perspective on time ought to be totally changed. Our faith suddenly makes us conscious of eternity. It was in the days just after Christmas when one of my kids said, I can't believe there's a whole other year until Christmas. Now for them, we saw before, that just seems like a cruel amount of time to wait. One year is a quarter of my daughter's life. But for me, for the rest of us, Christmas just seems to come quicker and quicker each year, doesn't it? It's just a small fraction of our lives. So what must it be like for God? For eternity past, he has existed. And so what's a thousand years? You know, it's just a fleeting moment of time, a snap moment. And so when the scoffers come, perhaps even pick up on the fact that the New Testament talks about Jesus' return being imminent, remember God's perspective and see things in that eternal context. Fourthly, we're to remember that, that, God's, that the Lord's delay in returning is for our good. He's not slack or incompetent or indifferent to the promise he has made, as the scoffers might imply. No, he is patient because he is merciful. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If Jesus had returned in the second century, say, or the 10th century, where would that leave each of us? Where would that leave the people of Springwood, your friends and family, your colleagues at work? Jesus delays because that enables more and more people to repent and therefore to be saved from God's wrath against sin. 
See, this is the heart of our God. In his love for each one of us, he has made a way back to him, even though humanity had turned its back on him, rejected his will and gone our own way. And the prolonging of this era between Christ's first coming and his second is a reflection of that merciful character. This is the era when the news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. That's what Jesus says in Luke's gospel. That's what we are to be doing in this era because this is the time that God has given for people to come to him in repentance. The Lord delays because he is merciful. It's for our good. He desires our repentance and salvation. But that delay is not going to last forever. And so the fifth and final thing to remember is that judgment will come. Verse 10 describes it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done on it will be laid bare. Now my only real involvement in thievery I was as a five-year-old when I smuggled some matches out of the local Woolworths down my tracksuit pants. And my mum made me take them back later and apologise. And I've been on the straight and narrow ever since, you'd be pleased to know. But I know enough about thievery to realise that if you do want to steal something, you don't let people know when you're coming. Likewise, Peter says, people aren't going to know the time when Jesus is coming. This picture of a thief is an image that Jesus himself used to describe his return. And he added the implication, therefore don't speculate about when it will be. We must simply live in readiness for it at all times. Just like we always lock our front door whenever we leave the house. But as well as it being at an unknown time, we also see that it will be a time of full exposure. People's thoughts, their words, their deeds will be fully exposed before God for judgment. That's what that imagery in verse 10 is about. That, all that stuff about the heavens and the earth disappearing and the elements being destroyed and the earth being laid bare. The heavens here just refers to the sky, which people in Peter's day kind of thought of as a solid dome separating the realm, God's realm, heaven, um, from earth down here. Uh, the elements then in verse 10 probably refer to the sun and the moon and the stars. In the ESV Bible, it's translated as the heavenly bodies, right? The sun, moon and stars. Now the point is, the heavens disappearing and the elements being destroyed is that that barrier between God and humanity and the earth is removed. God has now come down to us. And when that happens, everything on earth will be laid bare before him. Everything done in it, verse 10 says. And so there will be perfect and full judgment. You know, when a human judge judges in a courtroom, they can only rely on the imperfect and the limited evidence offered to them by lawyers and witnesses. But when the Lord judges, he sees all. He knows motives. He knows precisely what happened when and who caused it. He knows who is genuinely repentant, who has turned back to trust in Christ and to take hold of his salvation. His judgment will be perfect. And ultimately, as verse 7 said, 
it will lead to the destruction of the ungodly. So that's where things are all heading. That's the goal. Rather than being a cycle on and on according to nature's laws, history is linear. It's moving towards a particular end point. Now sometimes it may seem mythical or silly or counterintuitive and there'll be plenty of people who make it seem that way. But if we are to think wholesomely according to what God says, well, that's what we are to remember. That coming return of Jesus uh, and all that goes on uh, with that. But these things we remember should also give rise finally, to a whole other way of acting in the world. If we really believe in the coming day of the Lord, it should change, should totally change the way that we live. That's where the passage finishes off. And Peter asks a question there in verse 11. He says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? What kind of people ought you to be? And he gives us Three things in answer to that question. Firstly, we ought to live holy and godly lives, verse 11. That is, we ought to be like our holy God, distinct in our moral character from the rest of the world around us. That's what holiness means, distinct from the world around us. Instead of following our own desires, remember we saw before that's what the scoffers do, It's about valuing what God values, following his desires, loving what he loves, hating what he hates. Which makes sense when we see uh, in his coming judgment just how wicked ungodliness is. And so we ought to live lives of humility and compassion and patience and forgiveness, all those great New Testament virtues Lives where character is more important than career, where selflessness is more important than status. Now, really, all of this is just the fruit of ongoing repentance, that continual spirit-enabled realigning of your life according to God's ways. As you keep remembering those five things from before, truly absorbing them uh, and seeking to live them, these things will just become more and more obvious to you and so more and more they'll become the natural and intuitive way for you to live. Secondly, verse 12, we ought to be people who look forward to the coming of God. Look forward to the day of God, it says. We're to be waiting, but we're to be waiting eagerly and actively rather than passively. So, It's not the kind of waiting that you do when you're there waiting for a dental checkup, you know, scrolling through your phone, flipping through a magazine till you're waiting for your name to be called. No, it's the kind of waiting you do when it's grand final week and your team is playing. You're excited. You put the streamers on the car. You buy your tickets to the game. You make sure that your jersey is washed and ready to wear on the big day. All of that. I know what that's like. Down in verse 13, this excitement is fleshed out for us just a little bit more. It says, verse 13, We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There is excitement there in the picture of what lies ahead. A positive sense of what the day will bring. See, with all evil exposed and done away with, the whole creation renewed Here now is the permanent home of righteousness. It's where righteousness dwells, it says. 
It's where there's rich and fulfilling relationships. It's where there's enjoyable and satisfying work, no toil at all. And all of this is done in the smiling and immediate presence of our great God. And so do you live in eager expectation of a future like that? And then thirdly, we ought to be people who live to speed the coming of that day. Now, it sounds incredible that we can influence God's timing, doesn't it? But that's what God says here. We can speed Jesus' coming. Uh, There are a few ways we can do that. We can speed Jesus' coming by our evangelism. Jesus himself says that before the end comes, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. It's in Mark chapter 13. Now, we've already seen that the reason God is prolonging this current era that we're in is for the sake of people coming to repentance. Now, related to that, we can also speed his coming by our godliness. For the way we live our lives, too, can evangelize. So 1 Peter 2.12 speaks of people seeing the good deeds of Christians, which ultimately then prompts them to glorify God on the day he visits us. Which is a reference to them being converted. And then also we can speed it by our prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Your kingdom come. That's what we're asking for, the return of Jesus. And those famous words in the second last verse of the Bible, come Lord Jesus. It's a prayer that he would return. That's what God wants us to be praying for. And we know that God delights to answer prayers that are asked in alignment with the promises uh, that he has promised to give. So how are you living to speed Jesus' coming? Are you sharing the gospel with others in both your speech and in your actions? And, And are you calling on God for his return? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do give you thanks and praise for the wonderful news of the future coming of Jesus. Uh, We thank you that there will uh, be a day when the home of righteousness will be here on earth, when there will be no more wickedness, when that will all have been done away with. Father, we pray that you would help us now to be living in the light of that day. Father, though there may be pressures around us not to live that way, not to live as if Christ will return, we pray that you'd help us to withstand them and so to live lives of godliness, to live lives of expectant waiting and to live lives that speed his coming through evangelism and prayer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.